In the digital age, connectivity is everything. But if you can't connect, you are left out and left behind. Most Canadians have fast, reliable internet access. The CRTC found that 99.5% of the country and 97.4% of rural communities have 4G connectivity. Seems pretty good, right? But access is only part of the story. For the Canadians who don't have this access or don't have the devices, knowledge or skills to make the most of it, they risk losing out on job opportunities, schooling, healthcare, commerce and other crucial aspects of everyday life. Add in a global pandemic that's caused more working and learning to be done from home and the gap is exacerbated. This gap is called the digital divide. So how can we get better at closing it? That's what we want to find out. I'm Kira Johnston and this is the first episode of Leveling Up, a five-part mini-series from the Conference Board of Canada and TELUS. Over the course of this series, we'll speak with experts to spark debate and hear their perspectives on bridging Canada's digital divide. Our guests today are Helena Gaspar, the Director of Governance and Institutions at the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa, and Sam Andre, Director of Policy and Research at the Ryerson Leadership Lab. And we're going to talk about access and adoption of digital technologies. Sam and Helena, welcome to Leveling Up. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. What have the last 15 months taught us about the digital divide in this country? And how is this gap deepening the inequalities between Canadians? There were already gaps in digital access, digital services across demographics in Canada by location is often the one you hear about the most when people think about the digital divide, but there's divides by income, by age, education, race, indigeneity, ability. What the pandemic has done is it's laid bare those inequities and also exacerbated them. The transition of so much work, school, social interactions to virtual platforms the focus and delivery of so much of this has made obvious these gaps. There's new data out from Statistics Canada that found 6% of households in Canada still don't have a home internet subscription, which is relatively stable from 2018. The gaps haven't closed that fast. That's millions of Canadians left out of opportunities. And 30% of the job market during the pandemic was working from home and schooling as well. Who is represented in those gaps? And then more so, at what speed, even if you have a home internet connection, is it fast enough for all of your needs? At a very quick high level, it's half of rural households in Canada don't have access to the goal that the CRTC has set out, a 50-10 unlimited internet plan. So download speeds of 50 megabits per second, upload speeds of 10 megabits per second. It's even worse on First Nations reserves. It's about a third still. And about half of households with incomes under $30,000 don't have access to high-speed internet significant gaps that existed before the pandemic and really haven't closed. Building on Sam's point there about Canada's rural broadband challenge overall and those disparities as they exist now, in the Canadian context, it's to Sam's earlier point about that 50-10 target speed. We actually struggle broadly in Canada with connectivity and not the speed. So what's interesting is our 50-10 target is actually considered reasonable on an international level. And what we tend to see is that other countries like the United States, like the United Kingdom, they'll actually have greater breadth of coverage 
but not at that same 50-10 target speed level. The United States actually outperforms a number of other countries when it comes to rural connectivity at that 50-10 speed. That's one of the interesting questions in the Canadian context to highlight, is that speed isn't actually a problem. It's actually how do you get people connected? Now, Helena, what have you seen in the communities that don't have access? I think it's actually the question of differing levels of disparity. Of course, the pandemic has absolutely highlighted those divisions that have previously existed when all of the sudden everything from commerce to education to social services all shifted online. What we see in Canada is you have disparity even within the provinces where British Columbia and Quebec tend to lead when it comes to rural connectivity relative to other provinces, whereas others are struggling immensely to even out that disparity between urban and rural places. And of course, too, the more remote that you are, the more challenging and the far more complicated that question of connectivity becomes. We've been in some places where there is a plane that leaves every few days and there is one spot in the community that has reliable broadband access, or reliable internet access, period. And you tend to see how severe the dependency is and how great the ramifications of those disparities really become. Access and adoption are two different issues, even though some Canadians may have access to new technologies. Why are some slower to adopt? It's important to differentiate, is the service available versus are people taking it up? So just at a high level, using that 5010 benchmark. Still a significant portion of Canadians can't access the 5010. About 13% of households can't subscribe if they want to. About 30% don't. So there's a big gap there that speaks to affordability challenges or other choices that people are making. We did a study actually this March in partnership with the City of Toronto and surveyed 2,500 residents in the city. And Toronto doesn't have access issues. Everybody in the City of Toronto could access 5010. But still, we found a third didn't have 5010 service when we asked them to do an internet speed test. And for those that didn't, about one in five said that their service was too slow relative to their needs. That speaks to that gap. And part of the reason when we asked them for the households that didn't have any access, half said it was because of the cost. And fully a third of Toronto households said that they were worried about paying their home internet bill over the next couple of months. There's the price barriers. There's also the digital literacy barriers that I mentioned. And for people with disabilities, the barriers are different and call for different responses. But, you know, it's a multifaceted issue that lots of different folks are working on in different ways. In terms of solving this digital divide, Sam, what is some data that Canada is lacking that would be critical? Maybe I would just start with so much of the focus is on access rather than adoption in the sense that The CRTC has set goals and the federal government has set goals about what proportion of communities will have access to 5010. That's really important. But what I would say is we should probably have two measures that we're keeping track of. Do they have access? But then are people taking up what they need to access the digital services that they use? And I don't think enough focus is being put on quality adoption measures that are trackable year over year. Now, I should say StatScan in particular has done a really nice job with the Canadian Internet Use Survey. The data in Canada is getting better, but there's still a few things we don't quite know enough about. One is about this 5010 measure that Helena mentioned. Is it enough for the different types of households, different number of users, what they're using it for, the role that the 5G rollout will have in either making the digital divide better or worse? 
There's not enough information about devices. A lot of the focus tends to be on the internet access, but one in five people over the age of 60 don't have a smartphone, as an example. Access to laptops and devices to use the internet meaningfully is something that is not well understood in Canada. And then the final one is about digital literacy, and it's one that we at the Ryerson Leadership Lab have been trying to unpack, which is what works? How do we bring people, older adults, people with disabilities, how do we get skills and tools to them that they need to be able to access? There isn't data or evidence on that in Canada. So those would be the things I would point to. Now, Helena, the federal and provincial governments already know this issue exists. So what is essentially stopping them? Is it a question of money? Is it a jurisdictional issue? The Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy did some research into this and published a report actually on instruments for funding rural broadband connectivity. You start to look at the federal level investments. Right now, there's about $870 million available in the system, and an additional $1 billion was actually announced in Budget 2021 to help promote rural connectivity. At the very least, from a funding perspective, according to some measures, there's enough money in the system for multimodal connectivity across the country to help connect all kinds of rural places who might be underserviced or who may have no service right now. Part of the challenge, however, seems to be accessing that funding. When we look at that data, we actually can't tell how much of that $870 million has been allocated, how much of that is working on the ground, how much of that is being put to use. What we have seen in the last few months are helpful tripartite partnerships. Quebec came out, for instance, and announced a connectivity project that leveraged federal funding dollars, that engaged provincial funding, and that also connected with industry and local partners on the ground. And that type of arrangement where you have multiple partners coming to the table, focusing on a goal, can help encourage participation and even lower, in some instances, the barriers to participation for smaller communities or municipalities who may not have the latitude or the capacity for action on something like rural broadband simply because they're stretched. When you can access or when you can streamline the process to access funding, that's one of those opportunities where some of these connectivity questions can be moved forward. Another important element is that while Canada has really helpful data, I know Sam and I have both mentioned it, on what connectivity might look like at a household level, a detailed mapping that accounts for community need is a major gap. Understanding where communities are connected, where there are gaps or donut holes, as they call them, in connectivity and how those holes can be linked is actually a really important question because sometimes it doesn't necessarily take much to start to connect places that are underserviced and that could benefit immensely from that type of connectivity. What we heard in some of our workshops was that the Universal Broadband Fund, while making quite a bit of progress, is focused on a lot of large-scale projects, doesn't always deal with last-mile connectivity between that large-scale and to households, and still, because it is market-driven, gives a lot of consideration to profits, and it's a public-private partnership as opposed to community needs, like Helena said. So a lot of Indigenous communities say they put in tons of effort and time into trying to apply to these funds and don't succeed. A more serious and thoughtful partnership with Indigenous communities that are still not connected to the speeds they need is one thing we heard that is still not quite right with the Universal Broadband Fund. Connecting need on the ground is probably one of the most important things that can be done when it comes to rural connectivity. 
and recognizing that there are going to have to be a number of different ways and different tools that communities, municipalities, areas will want to connect. And we see all kinds of really interesting intermediaries. There are SWIFT, Rural Broadband, and EORN in Ontario that are clusters of communities that have come together and that actually, in SWIFT's case, do solutions-based procurement to help close or to help bridge the gap in that last mile of connectivity in their particular area of coverage. So specifically, Eastern Ontario in Eorin's case, and Southwestern Ontario in the case of SWIFT. There are others. Old Alberta is a town in Alberta, and they took it upon themselves to actually build their own broadband service. And they are a community-based not-for-profit that delivers broadband to their area starting to think about how you can use local problem-solving tools and foster that kind of local innovation, because there's so much awareness and knowledge there on the ground, is one of the best ways of helping to maximize or capitalize on that public investment that invariably, when it comes to rural broadband, is so important and is really necessary. Looking outside of Canada and speaking of those holes and gaps, can we look to other countries for solutions in closing the digital gap? especially in countries with big distances, for example, Australia or the United States? Absolutely. And one thing that we found in IFSD's work was that whether we were looking at the US, the UK, Australia, all of these countries were technology neutral. That means that you are connecting people and places for a whole series of different technologies. Sometimes it was fiber, sometimes it was satellite, sometimes it was wireless. And that those various modalities help to generate connectivity in a faster, more convenient, more cost-effective way. In the case of the U.S., much like in Canada, there are a whole series of programs and initiatives to fund broadband, and especially broadband in rural places. The Federal Communications Commission, so the equivalent of our CRTC here in Canada, has a really neat program, the Rural Digital Opportunities Fund. This particular fund is funded with industry levies. So this is private funding that actually goes into this big pot. And what happens with this particular fund is the money is allocated to places that are either underserved or not at all served. What happens is the FCC has the market determine what type of subsidy is necessary to encourage them to build. The FCC will go out with its really great mapping, with its really sound data and say, here are the places in the United States that either have no connectivity, no service, or that are underserved. And they move in a two-track kind of approach. The first auction, if you will, a reverse auction that went out was for underserviced areas. The FCC has its own models that account for things like geography and soil type and all kinds of other factors that could impact cost. And their model will actually define a reasonable range of offers that they think they can pay industry to help subsidize the build-out of connectivity infrastructure to ultimately provide coverage. That's how the FCC works. The FCC goes out and says, okay, providers, okay, private sector, tell us what it will cost for you to build in this area. And the goal of these auctions is to ensure that the best price in the most efficient build-out prospects connect and provide coverage for Americans. Certainly no instrument's perfect, but it's a really interesting way of helping to create and to connect industry and efficiency and incent those build-outs in those areas. 
By contrast, Australia tried to build its own fiber-enabled network. And while initially this was supposed to be a really exciting and really great project and opportunity for connectivity across Australia, it ended up being quite a challenge for Australia to complete. It's been riddled with all kinds of cost increases, and it's been nothing but a major challenge and major source of risk for several governments. That state-led build-out in such a massive place doesn't seem to be a lesson that we want to take back here in Canada. But certainly this idea of multiple technologies, multiple approaches, multiple instruments really seems to be a helpful way forward. And what initiatives have you seen, Sam, at either the public or private or partnership level that have been successful at increasing digital access and adoption? There's a lot positive. I don't want to be too negative. There has been a lot of progress. The first is the Connecting Families initiative that the federal government organizes with major telecommunication companies to offer $10 a month home internet for low-income families with children, so the family is eligible for the maximum Canada Child Benefit. And the organization Computers for Success Canada that administers this on behalf of the feds says they did an independent evaluation and they found 15% of the beneficiaries connected to the internet for the first time. And the balance obviously are accessing much more affordable internet. There have been concerns about the speed of that program, but it's a good example of a real public-private partnership. People often mistake that as a subsidy program, but it's actually not. There is no public money in that program. The telecommunication companies basically subsidize these families through the internet fees of everybody else. An interesting, innovative model that Canada has built that can be built upon further for groups beyond that target group. And there's a lot of work happening at the municipal level as well. Vancouver and Montreal are cities that have made major progress on public Wi-Fi and internet access. The city of Toronto has recently announced its Connectio initiative to build out its own broadband network. And these are important both for access for people who don't have access, but also as competition to the telcos as well. And there's a lot of great community organizations. We connected with 411 Seniors in BC doing amazing work connecting seniors the Life Institute in Toronto. There's a bunch doing really grassroots, interesting work through the libraries. To Helena's point, almost each community and the intersectionalities of these communities call for different things. Some of its literacy, some of its devices, some of its subsidies. There's a lot going on that is good. More to do, but a lot going on that is good. What role do you think corporations should play in bridging the digital divide for all Canadians? TELUS and Rogers both have subsidy programs of their own that fill different gaps. Rogers focuses on community housing projects. TELUS has programs for people in the child welfare system, people receiving disability benefits. Those programs targeted to specific communities can help fill some gaps as well. There's a role for corporations in disability accessibility. Corporations are responsible for making sure that the devices and the websites that they provide are accessible to people and through some government mandates. There's been a lot of progress on that front in recent years. Corporations in Canada are playing a major role in this. I would just say it's a lot of niche programs. There's also 3 million low-income Canadians that are not eligible for these programs. And so I don't think it's mission accomplished. Helena, what advice would you give to policymakers on increasing access and adoption across Canada? One of the things that I did want to mention and maybe clarify is that in the international context, public subsidies for rural broadband connectivity are common across jurisdictions. And so there's a very limited business case when it comes to funding rural broadband or having industry go it alone. 
And what we've seen, especially in Canada, is that that subsidy will range from anywhere from two-thirds public funding to one-third private, up to a one-half public, one-half private mix to actually support and subsidize these rural broadband connectivity projects. There are three things that policymakers should be aware of. The first and most important is you really have to understand need from the bottom up. That means bringing federal and provincial governments and municipal governments to the table with industry and with communities to help understand user demand and what's really necessary to close gaps on a geographic basis. The second consideration is being comfortable with differentiated approaches to closing the rural broadband gap. And that means all kinds of instruments. We're a big country. We have all kinds of terrain, geographies, and community needs. Let's start being creative about the approaches that we're using. Let's think about those regional intermediaries like SWIFT, and let's think about reverse auctions like the FCC uses in the U.S. What are those tools that can be leveraged? Because a single approach won't be sufficient for achieving that goal of broad-based rural connectivity. And third, Critically, political will and administrative action have to come together to promote this kind of change. When both Sam and I mentioned at the outset some of the challenges of accessing funding, for instance, from the Universal Broadband Fund, those are administrative changes that can be done to help streamline access, to help provide increased tool sets, increased access, increased clarity. Even though there are initiatives that exist, we're still hearing that it can be quite challenging to navigate a lot of those systems when you're looking at it from a smaller community or from a number of different places. And Sam, any advice on your end? I don't want to repeat some of the things we just heard. I think a focus on the community level, just to echo what Helena said for sure, the other would be to think about how we can use the infrastructure that we have to extend subsidies and subsidize access for particularly vulnerable groups. Like I think about long-term care facilities, community housing, people with disabilities. How could we focus our efforts in the immediate term coming out of the pandemic? And finally, I'm curious, where will we be in, say, five years if we do all of this right? The CRTC target is that 95% of households will be connected to 5010 by 2026. Every indication is that that should be met. Right now, it's about 13% aren't connected, so that would shrink to 5 That would be major progress, but I think we can do better. My other hope is that we broaden our focus from access to access and adoption, which is what are the range of tools that we can use to drive adoption? There's a role for public subsidies. There's a role for community networks that can drive competition and facilitate access. There's a role for literacy and device loaning and other community-led programs by Keeping that adoption focus in mind, it actually will illuminate the gaps on the access side that can get lost in. 95% sounds like a big number. That sounds pretty good. That would be my hope. Helena, would you like to speak to it as well? Sam covered it pretty well. If it's done right, we have near complete coverage. The issue of that scalability for improvement becomes so important. And certainly from what we've learned in our work is leveraging those differentiated approaches are critical but ensuring that there's always learning happening, right? And that there are always those opportunities to connect out further, to refine the technologies is actually what will end up making this sustainable over time. Connecting that infrastructure piece with the uptake and with that digital literacy and digital engagement that Sam was mentioning. I'd like to thank you for joining us on Leveling Up and coming onto our podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. 
You can find out more about Sam and Helena's ideas and research, as well as TELUS's plans to connect Canadian communities by following the links in the episode description. Access the Conference Board of Canada's research, insights, and our latest COVID-19 coverage at conferenceboard.ca. Leveling Up is brought to you by the Conference Board of Canada and TELUS. It's hosted by Kira Johnston and written by Sarah Mills. Kurt Steiglater is our audio engineer and Andy Joy is our post-production editor. Our executive producer is Michael Bassett. Ideas were also contributed by Catherine Fournier and Rob Collins. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of TELUS or the conference board. If you like what you hear, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. For more podcasts, research, and ideas on Canadian issues, visit conferenceboard.ca. Thanks for listening.